gathering of kindred spirits who are humble enough to acknowledge our vulnerability, those areas where we struggle. that shared, in some sense, trust. That there is a possibility of stretching, aligning more steadily and accessing that sacred core of cores that is not cut off, but able to respond to ourself, our family, our community, our world. So it has been uh, an honor to share the time, have a chance to meet you all in groups, individually, and in that mysterious way and place where we merge in the silence. Not the dead silence, but the wakeful, sensitive, interested, curious. Silence that's filled with listening. In this heart of the retreat, uh, encouraging us to use the time well. We might not realize it, but there's been a a lot of collective supporting, helping one another with the structure, our effort, our practice, a collective cultivation of moments of presence, forgetting, remembering, forgetting, remembering, patiently, kindly, opening to, stretching to receive the restlessness, the exhaustion, the spiky grumpiness, the resentments, the relief, so that these moments, little by little, become sustained. start to flower into gatheredness, centeredness, what the Buddha called samadhi, a unification where all of us is here. Our thinking mind is not off somewhere else, but it's directing us here with this body, received by this awareness, unifying awareness. So with this uh, gatheredness on these, uh, accumulated through these three days and nights, encouraging us to stay with it. Because there's a possibility, increased possibility of seeing through biases, assumptions. The Buddha realized, recognized, and taught that a gathered mind sees things the way they are. A mind with some samadhi will see into the way things are if we direct it. Holding more loosely our preconceptions, our biases, our convictions, it's this way, it's that way. Encouraging us to to continue taking advantage of these supportive circumstances in the desert, in a sanctuary that's uh, dedicated for practice, with fellow beings that don't think it's weird that we don't have to be a scintillating personality all the time, who can appreciate the opportunity to pause, to listen who can recognize the nobility 
of listening and bearing with the sitting or walking, a sharing of ideas and thoughts in a, in a setting like a check-in or an interview. With this uh, wonderful gathering, I'm so privileged to be with this gathering of uh, fellow Dharma teachers. Learning, being inspired by their offerings and inspired by all of your, all of our collective presence. We might think that we're moving through the retreat, how many days are left, oh my gosh, I've I got some, got at least have one big insight. <laughs> but that to remember even that is just a way of talking this idea of the path from darkness to light or from suffering to the end of suffering. It's a way of talking. But that actually, and this is why the Buddha was reluctant at first to, to teach. Because he realized uh, when he woke up that he didn't actually attain anything. It's not that he got something. He recognized that which is always already here. This luminous heart. This peaceful, radiant, sensitive, undying, ground of presence. That all that effort trying to get somewhere that was so elusive, trying to get rid of, was obscuring his, our vision of what is of the sacred We imagine with a beautiful rainbow or the lovely moment of synchronicity, which are wonderful moments, when the perfection of it all manifests itself. Then when it dissolves, we try to get back there, somehow imagining now because my back hurts and because, oh, well, there's still that lust problem and, oh, gosh, I just... I know I should be forgiving, but I mean, can you believe what they actually did behind my, b- behind my back? <laughs> then we think, no, I can't, the sacred can't be here. It's when I deserve it or overcome something. When the Buddha awakened to the true nature, he realized that this heart is radiant. The heart is radiant. That peaceful, unshakable heart is radiant. But we lose touch with it. Because we get confused by what's moving through the heart. what's moving through the heart. So we might think we're making our way through the retreat, but isn't it true that this retreat, our experience, is presenting itself in this heart? Right now, what's moving through the heart, what's appearing in our sensitive presence, the evening talk, the sight, as our attention moves, the sounds moving through the heart, welling up and subsiding, interwoven with the sensations of sitting in our cushion or chair, with impressions and thoughts, feeling tone, it's moving through the heart now, in memories maybe of how it was this morning, or how it was last retreat on the third day there was a massive breakthrough and I just I don't know 
our memory, notice that appears and subsides, or the anxiety, what if, what if I don't break through? What if I never really see it? Maybe I don't have the true nature. Everyone else does. But that too, that anxiety rises and ceases. That this heart is radiant, but we get confused. So when the Buddha was reflecting on what gives rise to this experience of being a refugee from this knowing this pure luminous heart, what uh, Tara called the homesickness. The Buddha said the cause is this avijja. A means not, vijja, seeing clearly, not seeing clearly, this somehow ignoring or making assumptions about, that when we make assumptions about this experience. It's not seeing clearly. And the result of uh, not really knowing the way things are is that we bump into life, we get knocked around, assumptions, what we think this is the way it is and then it goes and changes. And the beauty of, of this teaching home, this way home, is that uh, those bumps, that distress, that wobble, that suffering, rather than needing to blame it on anyone, just quickly see if we can get rid of it. The Buddha and the great saints and sages said, no, this is, is to be open to It's an ennobling truth, open to this experience. Yet through the alchemy of that willingness to stretch, allow ourselves to be open, vulnerable, tender, we deepen our capacity to be human, and an alchemy of understanding can happen. My strategy for, uh, as I was growing up, arriving at well-being was uh, just to, I think Tara was talking about these different strategies we have, where I overcame my sense of being a refugee and the sense of not being quite good enough. My strategy was, well, just work harder, accomplish. So in my life, uh, I put a lot of effort into working hard at academics and Sports. You're looking at what's left of a five-time Mid-South wrestling champion. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) I know it's hard to believe. (laughs) And I won this national, national invitational uh, championship. Used to walk on my hands for a hundred yards, do five hundred push-ups a day in training before the tournaments, climb ropes, run. From a child, I'd seen a national champion with a picture on the wall of our school. I thought, that's because huh. in wrestling you can be small, and they used to have a weight class. And I don't regret the work. I mean, there's a lot of virtue in striving and, and learning to be patient and persevere and be equanimous to pleasure and pain. But there was this imagination, I will arrive at success. And I remember when I won the uh, national championship and they held up my hand. And the cheers from our, we'd, from Tennessee, the people that came up with us up to Pennsylvania where the tournament was, up, was, were all cheering, yay, one. But how long does your hand stay up? <laughs> if you got a mom like I do, she took a picture. <laughs> Everything, yeah. And so you open the scrapbooks, yeah. But... And 
not many minutes after winning when they got the champions together and took our pictures and I was scanning. Who do I have to fight next year to defend? I couldn't articulate it, but it was... Similar in academics, I worked really hard. Tennessee went up to Princeton and ended up winning a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. But at some point I, I realized you, you don't get there. I was so tired. Again, I don't regret the hard work. There was the beautiful qualities in that that obsession with winning and comparing and imagining that you're going to get there. There was a realization, hey, I'm missing something here. Something I'm overlooking. I used to go sit in quiet places, sensing I had overlooked this, this inner part. I'm someone who's always appreciated the blessing of a teacher a great wrestling coach and you know he he was tough but he was he he taught he shared I realized okay I can do good on exams but I realized that just because you can do good on exams I still inside felt really stupid nothing was enough this other pandemic that has been discussed in many ways during this retreat. I also was afflicted by this tyrant of an inner judge. Nothing's enough. So you keep working harder, I'll get there. Never will. So I knew it needed to turn in, but I didn't really understand the space. And I heard while I was at Oxford that there was a master, a wise master in Northeast Thailand. who had a few Westerners with him. Even the word enlightened. I didn't know what it meant. But still the word meant something from, to me that I knew there was something about our relationship with this moment that I was not getting right. So I, I left, left my scholarship much to the dismay of my parents. They looked on the globe, Hicks in Tennessee, and then if you go as far away from there, on the other side, you get Thailand. <laughs> and mom thought, you're ch- we must have done something terribly wrong because you're going as far away as possible on the earth. I said, Mom, I promise you, that's not it. But when I I met this teacher, I really so wanted. I'd read about Ramdas meeting his teacher and getting tapped on the head and bursting into tears and... (laughs) having a big breakthrough and so I was sort of hoping. (laughs) So I, someone I had met took me on this overnight train from Bangkok up to the northeast up near the Laotian and Cambodian border in a very poor, dry, part of Thailand. It was known for its meditation monasteries. And this uh, person uh, uh, took me to meet Ajahn Chah. He, he was sitting under his hut, which was on stilts. He was in his wicker chair and he had some guests from villages few monks sitting by him. He was on his chair and as my friend took us in, he, he, he bowed and sat down and so I tried to 
follow as best I could. At some point, uh, Ajahn Chah uh, noticed us. My friend who could speak Thai, he was American but could speak Thai, introduced me. And Ajahn Chah said, hmm, why did you come? So I mumbled something about enlightenment and, you know, sometimes when you talk, what you say sort of, Peter's out a bit, but I, got, I made a stab at it. <laughs> I didn't feel on very firm ground there. And he said, he said oh, but, but do, you, do you know how to meditate? And I thought, oh, wait a minute here. I've done a 10-day retreat, so I felt on much firmer ground. So I said, yes, I, 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 I do know how to meditate. And the, the first way I learned was sweeping down through the body, and I felt pretty good at it. Um, and they only taught sweeping one time. But I, on my own, without any help from the teacher, learned how to sweep simultaneously down <laughs> both sides of my body. Now, I didn't say this to Ajahn Chah, but I figured he would see <laughs> that I had potential. And so, I was, you know, it would have been nice if he said, well, I've been waiting and... You know, and, and the head, head tap. And <laughs> so I'm only halfway through my meditation, you know, hoping he would see my potential. And he's on his chair, and then he gets off the chair onto all fours and starts sniffing around like a dog. <laughs> this is some more dog dharma. <laughs> sniffing around like a dog, sniffing all over the place, and saying something in Thai, and everyone starts laughing. And... Um, including me. I mean, it was funny. <laughs> but I am intuitive, I'll have you know. Maybe it's because I'm Piscean, I don't know. But I could tell he wasn't that impressed <laughs> with my meditation. But I'm sort of saying, Doug, may I have a translation, please? And so at some point, he got back up in his chair, lovely twinkling smile. And he looked at me and, and spoke. And uh, Doug translating said, he says, you don't need to look all over the place. He said, if you understand one thing well, you'll understand everything. If you try to understand everything, you might end up not knowing anything thoroughly. He said, why don't you be with your breathing? And let Sameda teach you how to be a monk. Sameda was the senior Western monk he had. He said, let him teach you how to be a monk. Now, even though an orthodox meeting. He got my attention. And even though I was laughing, he touched my heart. But I had grown up ashamed of my nose. Everyone used to make fun of my nose. And I had an English teacher that used to say, Son, you've got a nose like the keel of a ship. So to be pointed to my nose as the gateway to <laughs> enlightenment was not what I expected. <laughs> but the principle I liked, the principle and, and uh, what we were inducted into is just what we've been doing, is learning to... Before, I mean, I had been writing my thesis at Oxford on art science and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley. I was sincere. I wanted to understand religion and science and creativity and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I really was trying to do the whole thing and why I suffer and everybody suffers and why do people who love each other end up wanting to kill each other and all that. He was saying, be with the breathing. And in learning to do just what we've been doing, be simple. 
cultivate this primary relationship, even though it might look like one is running away. One is letting some things go so that we can really get to know what it's like to be with body. This body that is nourished with every in-breath and out-breath. to train ourselves to be here, to see things the way they are. When you understand one thing, you'll understand everything. And as we practice little by little being here, recognizing patiently the mind that wants to be everywhere else and keep returning to being with standing and walking and sitting and lying down, breathing in, breathing out. What do we notice? We notice what arises, ceases. Tanisra touched on it in the uh, instruction this morning, that with this gathered presence, we can also turn it the way things are. Just as a hot stove, cast iron stove that's been heated for hours, when a drop of water falls on it, it's there, it's gone. It's there, it's gone. In the mind that is present, gathered, starts to notice this experience. With language, we call it breath. Sounds like a thing. Me, you, my body, happiness. All these language concretizes, makes things seem so solid. But when we actually practice being with something simple like the breath, what do we notice? It's coming in, shifting, swelling, subsiding. Swelling, subsiding. Swelling, subsiding. It's not the same for a moment. comes and goes. We might have a name for it, but it's actually this ever-changing process. This body's vibrating. Every sensation, we might call it my hand, my foot, but when we bring the attention to the actual experience, it's pulsing. Feeling don't shift. Monday night, third full day, Dharma talk, sounds like a, a thing. Oh, when's he going to get done? Doesn't he know the third day's hell and we've got to get through that and then it'll change? Might have opinions about it, but when we go close, just like the breath, when we get close to the Monday night, Dharma talk, Kitty Sorrow. Notice the sounds, the talk. Is it, is it a thing? Phrases come and go. Wells up and subsides. That's just the sound part, the thoughts and perceptions part, interwoven with our, the sights. braided with cascading streams of sensation and impressions and mood. That the actuality, when we don't just get
enchanted. By the way, we describe it by our language. The syntax of language, if we don't understand it, can be very misleading. You can call it a good talk, a bad talk. It was useful, it was bearable, it was fantastic. But the actuality is this cascading stream. So when we really, this ah-nicca, just as the breath comes and goes and never stays the same, understand one thing, understand everything, same for sights, sounds, smells, tastes, bodily impressions, understandings, thoughts, Yet we have this idea we're going to get somewhere and going to get to success. This quality when we start to see of things always changing. Ah, Nietzsche. The subtle definition of dukkha becomes clear. Dukkha means not satisfactory. If, if something's shifting and changing, to, to want it then to just satisfy us, is crazy. Or wouldn't it be nice if the moon was always full? It's, it's incredible, the full moon. But that's, that's the wish of a child. It's full and then wanes. It's full tonight. We might just think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if it's just the in-breath? It's inspiring. It's fresh. It's vibrant. Our breath stale, smelly, not useful. But we can't just breathe in. Breathe in and out. Success, no, no, no. no I'm going to arrive to success. That was, that was a, a dream, an enchantment, a trance. just as natural as in and out, birth and death, vibrant, healthy and sick, being confident, being doubting, natural. As my teacher Ajahn Chah would say, if you look for certainty in that which is not certain, you're bound to suffer. We want a feeling to stay with us. We, we want to just keep harmony. We, we want just health, praise, pleasant feeling. That's looking for certainty in that which can't be certain. It's, it's asking life, the life of manifestation, to give us what it can't give. It's a dishonoring of the true nature. It's an enchantment. And imagining, that's why it's samsara, we keep thinking we're going to get there to the success and it dissolves. And then, oh, just a little more. And that leaning so far forward keeps driving us. Or pushing things away keeps driving us. The Buddha realized that when he was enchanted with the idea of something to hang on to, or enchanted by the idea there was something really that had to be get be gotten rid of, that he didn't see that which is always here. After the Buddha's first teaching, he finally did for the welfare of the many, even though he knew this was going to be subtle and hard to understand. He did turn the Dharma wheel. He did share the teachings to his five former colleagues in striving. And when he taught about the noble truth of suffering, that, that when we don't resent it but open to that which is difficult, that ennobles us and allows us to then recognize how we juice the system, how we perpetuate how we cause suffering. 
by wanting things to be what they can't be, by this wanting and not wanting. And he saw how this letting go, this disenchantment, led to realizing this timeless dharma and this path of ethics and mindfulness, gatheredness, wisdom and compassion would lead home. When he gave that teaching on the four ennobling truths, one of the disciples broke through. The Buddha saw, ah, he said at the end of the teaching, kandanya, kandanya knows. You think, what did, he, what did he realize? The end of that discourse, he said, kandanya knows that which arises, ceases. must have left something out. I mean, I know that must be the secret thing that they don't tell you. That all the profound understandings of not-self and emptiness come out of this recognition. The Buddha taught that even a moment, he said even a finger snap, of being aware of impermanence, has immense fruitfulness. Because as we really start to notice that not only every sensation, thought, circumstance is melting, that then that obsession, the enchantment, the idea that we're really going to get there starts to fade. Because with moments of change, we realize it can't be grasped. There starts to be the relinquishment month, the letting go. Condogno then shared about what happened to him on that first occasion in a different sutra. He, he, he told the image of, that helped him have that breakthrough. In the Sharangama Sutra, Mahayana Sutra, Kandanya talks about the image of the guest dust that helped him break through. He said, imagine a, a hotel or an inn where a traveler comes, stays a while, maybe has a meal, sleeps night and then leaves. The guest comes and goes, but the host remains. or the light coming through a crack in the wall or a window. And in the beam of light, he saw the dust dancing. It's the nature of dust to dance. But the space illumined by the light was unmoved. The dust, its nature is to dance. But the space was unmoved. The guests come and go, but the host remains. So when we start to practice mindfulness, when we've been so caught in the enchantment that the only real thing is me and mine and my success and my health and my happiness or my suffering, when we start practicing presence, humility, inquiry, Allowing, then we start to notice that things come and go. The in-breath and the out-breath. The sound comes and goes. But when a sound is there, then when the sound stops, we don't keel over dead. The presence remains, or the awareness, or the listening whatever one calls it.
So in practice, we not only notice forms, but we notice the forms arising and dissolving back in this ground. The Buddha taught that the primary misconception about the body and mind is the false view that the mind dwells in the physical body. You do not know that the physical body, as well as the mountains, the rivers, empty space, and the great earth, are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. We might think consciousness is some little byproduct, that the real stuff is the the forms. It's real, but its reality is coming and going. As we start to practice and have our own experience, knowing things as they actually are manifesting, we'll see that every sound, our body right now is appearing in our awareness. That the sense of all of us in this room is appearing in the awareness. that actually everything is within this mind. Nibbana Pariyosana Sabedama. Wisdom surmounts all conditions. No matter what the circumstance, freedom is at the heart of that moment. All things come together and merge in that which never dies. Everything comes home to completion in Nibbana. Every circumstance has as its essence freedom. We think, oh no, part of the enchantment is, no, 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 it's, the freedom is when I get to success. The freedom is when I find the beloved. The freedom is when, when and then we overlook the sacredness Every circumstance, sore back, confusion, I'm not really sure. We muti sarasa so even not really being sure, that's like that dust. Dancing, I'm not being sure. When we open to that, just as it is, no, 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 I prefer confidence. no, 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 no. But when I get confident, then we're leaning and overlook the sacredness. I'm not r- really sure. What is that about the Buddha nature? If we can listen to those sounds coming and going, can we get the feeling of the, that which remains? There's a stillness, a presence. So we can actually practicing letting each thing, each moment dissolve and take us home to that which is always already here, the knowing, the listening. Especially our thoughts, which when we're not careful with them, leads to what the Buddha called papancha, this conceptual proliferation. The slightest little thought, like an I, seems so innocent. But I, me, I, as soon as we have an I, then there's a you. A here, a there, a yesterday, tomorrow, it gets very complicated. All these walls and finding ourselves in here. The Buddha taught that actually all things merge in the deathless. There's a place where all this separation is coming together. 
everything merges. Like we can notice the different trees, different cacti, trees. Or there's not so many here, but we can see their differences. The ones we like, the ones we don't like, the ones we have to be careful. I ran into a cactus of, right before I came here. I got free acupuncture. <laughs> really, 50. Tanisha just shook her head. <laughs> so I'm careful. But where do all those different trees, the oak tree, the pine tree, the cactus, the indigenous, the alien, the... We can see the differences, but they all merge in the ground. The tree is not rooted. It's not a tree. It's dead. All the branches, leaves that fall off, flowers, they return to that place where you can't distinguish from this one to that one. The place where they all merge. When our awareness is just objectified, enchanted by the external, we just see the differences. But when we reflect on the guest dust, that which is coming and going, when we honor Kuan Yin, the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world, bow into that ground of listening, we'll notice every sound, every impression. So all these differences that we see they all merge in this ground of our listening. We are encouraged in our monastic training to listen to these thoughts. Notice the gaps after the thought, the silent, where all the distinctions merge learning to see the ephemeral nature of thought. To realize that the thoughts can't really tell us who we are. When we get enchanted by the thoughts, I'm just uh, useless, or I'm the best. When we learn to listen to the thoughts and dissolve and learn to allow ourselves to rest in that place where all things merge. So that disenchantment, when we realize trying to grasp, looking for certainty where we can't find it, we practice letting go and notice peace. Then we have to look at what we don't want, and then that's where it's so important to also learn how to welcome that kindness. The Buddha not only said a finger snap of wisdom as immeasurable virtue, the other time, at least that I know of in the scriptures, when he gave the same image of a finger snap, he said, of kindness, loving kindness. You can call yourself my disciple and you're worthy as a monk or none of the alms round of the food that is offered, even a moment, how much more so when we deepen this understanding of change and this willingness to open and embrace. It's one mind that focuses, sees that everything's ungraspable. We might call it a waterfall, my waterfall on our African Hermitage, when it really rains, up on the mountain there's a beautiful waterfall. When it really rains, we think, oh, we've got a waterfall. Go close to it. You, can't, you can be in awe of it, but can we can just be in awe of it? But if you see it's changing and empty and there and it's gone, does it mean it's nothing? Sometimes once we start to let go, we just sort of want to know the peace and then we don't want to feel anything, but that's still stuck. That's when we learn to embrace. Moment of kindness stretches. 
takes us back to that same wide, measureless place. So Sri Nisargadatta says, wisdom says I'm nothing. Compassion says I'm everything. Between these two banks, the life of the awakened one flows. Wisdom. We start to notice that whatever is coming and going, it's not really who we are. Yes, I'm success or failing or happy or unhappy, but to it's shifting, changing. Wisdom says I'm not the thing. It lets go and we notice that ground of the heart. Compassion keeps opening, widening. says I'm everything. Between these two banks, the life of the awakened one, this one mind can focus, can let go, can welcome. At their core, wisdom and compassion merge. Some of our tendencies are really deep-rooted. And even though this luminous heart is always here and now, it's in a moment we can open to it. And it's important to keep allowing ourselves moments to notice that which remains, that space that every sound dissolves back into. Even so, we, we all have our stuff are deep-rooted tendencies that require a lot of patience. I had a few insights early on and in, in, in Thailand was excited and I was going to work harder and work harder and still had that tendency of, well, I'll get there even though I had a little bit of suspicion, but that isn't just it, but uh, certainly... I was working hard. Then I got uh, diarrhea for six months and I just kept working harder. And I got bit by centipede and hands swollen up for three weeks and then started urinating blood. And And then I just, uh, it really just started seeming too difficult. I'd had moments of noticing the peace, but how? How does one keep going? So I wanted to to go uh, see my teacher. And my tie wasn't that good, but I... My teacher said he would uh, help to translate because I, from being a champion and the best and then knowing that that doesn't really get there and then suddenly just being a monk with a bald head and you're sitting in a row of monks and you look up the row and there's just more bald heads. (laughs) You look down the row and there's bald heads. We'd sit once a week all night long and I would determine I'm going to sit like a rock. And then, you know, 7.30, sitting like a rock. 8.15, rocks crumbling. (laughs) 8.45, just jerked. You look up the line and half of the monks are weaving. Look down the line. You think, oh my God. Like a bunch of billiard balls, and 
and look inside the mind and just, just lust and all you can think about is the next meal or, uh, you know, sexual fantasies and, uh, and we would draw water every day and once we were getting water for our baths and stuff like that, I, a Laotian girl in the distance with this lovely long black hair didn't want to get too close to the monk so she said, Lyle of all, are you finished yet? I tell you what, I heard her saying that for weeks. <laughs> and weeks. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, you know. And you know, you want to be mindful at the meal, and then you know, you eat one meal a day, and you want to be mindful, and the next thing you know, you've eaten this whole bowl, you don't even remember eating it, but you feel like a beached whale. <laughs> and you crawl to your hut and think, never again, never again. Hate yourself the whole time, and then the next day, no, nah, I'm going to do it. So I got so discouraged and depressed, I really felt I was never going to laugh again. I had that impression. So my friend, the habit at that time, a former Vietnam helicopter pilot, American, who finally got out of, after the war, and became a a good monk. He took me over to see Ajahn Chah, and the other monks at the main monastery were in the chanting, and uh, saw Ajahn Chah stay because he knew we were coming sitting back in his chair and Babakaro, Ajahn Babakaro took me over and Ajahn Chah just said, well, what is it? And I said, "Uh, Ajahn Chah, it's difficult. Uh, (laughs) I said, I, I, it feels like I'm never going to laugh again. You know, it just, uh, you know, just, lustful mind and all I can think about is the meal and the, the sweets, the pumpkin sweets and my mind is just so crazy and he goes, hmm. He said, well, tell me about yourself. So he started asking about my wrestling past and I was telling him about that and my studies and he goes, hmm, hmm. And so then he starts to say something in Thai and Pabakro says, Oh, he says you remind him of a baby squirrel. <laughs> and so I said, oh, okay. He said, this baby squirrel saw that his mother could run up the uh, tree and jump from branch to branch and do all this stuff. And this baby squirrel thought, yeah, I'm going to do that. And so this baby squirrel runs up the tree and jumps and dog. And in Thai, this, this phrase dog, this low tone means it, it falls down. This baby started crying. And uh, Papakwa says, he said, well, the mother said, son, you've got to go to school. So she sent to kindergarten and first grade. So he learned some tricks and then do a few things and dog, fall down. <laughs> And Ajahn Chah was sitting in his chair. I was on the floor. So I'd look up and he'd look down at me and his eyes would like go in circles when this uh, baby would cry and the mother would say, you know, you just need to go to school. So he had this, you know, squirrel going to first grade and second grade. (laughs) And it was dog, dog, falling down, getting up. Sometime in college, uh, you know, I mean, I started rolling on his floor. I was hysterically laughing and you know he's still talking he's still going on and then he he had this school baby school finally growing up getting a PhD <laughs> I thought I was going to die I was just uh, killing myself and finally I, I was able to sit up and Ajahn Chah just uh, looked at me and said in one day that squirrel could do every single thing its mother could From the crown of my head down through the soles of my feet, I felt this, this, this relief. To just hold it all lightly. This, he could say that with assurance, because our nature, it's not that we get it. 
we're little by little opening to what's already here. Every sound. Every worry is perfectly fused. It's dust dancing in the luminous space of our heart. So I am in bliss hearing to that. And then he keeps going and, and Babako says, he says you also remind him of a donkey. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I want to stay with the squirrel. <laughs> and, and, and he goes, oh God, the donkey. He said, no, this donkey was clever, so I like that. This clever donkey and it heard all this music being made in the forest by the cicadas, like the crickets or the cicadas. And this donkey, who was industrious and also pretty clever, thought, I want to do that. And it studied. It, it started observing what the, the insects, these whatever they were, the cicadas, what their diet was. And it noticed as they were eating dewdrops. Mmm. So he watched, watched. Okay, okay. So the donkey prepares himself. And in the morning, started fresh. In the morning, licked 10, 20, hundreds, few thousand dewdrops. And then prepared to make music and opened his mouth and was so disappointed. <laughs> and Ajahn Chah stopped talking. Yeah. <laughs> and I blocked out the donkey story for quite a few years until to Nisera. <laughs> I said, Kitty, sir, I think that donkey, you got to bring that donkey back. And just to, you know, it's not just about us becoming somebody else. Yes, we study, we practice, and that will take us home. That's baby squirrel. But it's also not just about being somebody else, it's about listening into our body and mind, finding our sound. And has been encouraged by all this beautiful team you know, it's learning to be kind. Learning not to be so enchanted by these, this, this pandemic of criticism, but to know it. To, it's out of this body and mind, this experience, that our flowering happens. So I encourage us to be patient to be kind and to trust the, the wise ones that have told us our destiny. It is our nature to wake up. Let's quicken the process by our willingness just to sincerely, humbly be here. So, thank you. Spend a few minutes in silence.
May the many blessings of our lives, this wonderful accumulation of moments of patience, allowing, vulnerability, investigation, beginning again. May all this goodness of our lives be shared above, below, and all around for the welfare of all beings, near and far, seen and unseen. May all beings be free from suffering and be blessed by our good efforts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.